Welcome to the Take 92 podcast. My name is Sammy Warmhands. I am your host. And today we're talking to one of my all-time favorite producers, Ryan Green. You might have seen his name on punk rock albums, on Epitaph, and Fat Records. We're going to talk about working with Lagwagon, Strung Out, Good Riddance, No Use for a Name, and the NoFX classic, The Decline, now celebrating its 20th anniversary. This is Ryan Green. I really appreciate you uh, doing the show. This is exciting for me. Well, thanks for having me. You have to deal with my, my babble. I'm happy to. I mean, that's, that's, that's uh, the best thing. Poor as, you. Uh, that's the best thing for, for a podcast guest. If I'm going to have to be prying answers out of you, that's a much different situation than somebody who's just like, oh, yeah, I love talking about this shit. Well, you know, I can, uh, I can just answer everything yes and no, if that makes it better. Yeah, we'll, we'll just have like a 30-second episode. Yes. <laughs> there you go. The end. Yes. I was trying to think of even where I wanted to begin. Um, I mean, I, I mentioned ahead of time that um, part of my motivation in contacting you now is uh, because I do want to dive into the decline being the 20-year anniversary. But um, 20 years? Yeah, man. I don't yeah, know how that, I mean, um, I'm 28, so I don't know how that happened. <laughs> and why does everybody laugh when I say that? Well, I'm, let's see, 33. I first got into punk rock when I was like 11 or 12, so this is like 96, 97. The first CDs that I heard on the same day was No Effects Heavy Petting Zoo, produced by you, and About Time from Pennywise, uh, produced by Jerry Finn. And... It blew my mind. I, I had my friend dub that Heavy Petting Zoo album onto a cassette for me, and I played it all the time. I remember being at my dad's house, and he's like, does your mom know you listen to this shit? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> no. I, I didn't know what some of the words meant, you know? I didn't know all this weird sexual shit that he's talking about. Yeah, but um, Mike, Mike is great at uh, you know, his wordplay, so. Yeah, yeah. But, like, the opening notes on that album with the distorted bass i feel like are between that and the like you know the the thick mesa guitars on that pennywise record and the shortly after that i got insomniac from green day and it's got those you know really uh punchy drums on that opening track so many of those first sounds i feel like have stuck with me all this time and and even getting into like I'd be asking my friends about, oh, well, you know, what other punk bands you listen to? And they'd put on The Misfits, and I'd be like, oh, this sounds like shit. <laughs> and they put on, like, they put up Bad Religion, it was 80-85, and I was like, oh, this is terrible. Like, this is what you listen to? You know, and, like, it took me a minute to, to get into that stuff because, like, the sound, that fat epitaph thing, it took this, like, aggression, but it made it huge, and it made it a little more palatable and even nowadays, it's like when my band is going to play with other bands, it's like I'll listen to their their demo online. It's like it just sounds like a phone in the middle of the room recording. You know, it's like I, I've always been drawn to certain sounds. And, um, and I, I really credit you and, and, you know, like I said, Jerry Finn and, and Bill Stevenson and Donald Cameron and so many of these guys for kind of steering me in that direction. That's kind of my... My introduction to, since we've never met before, 
the reason that I'm that I'm calling you today. Well, I appreciate that definitely the call. And uh, back then, too, the budgets were a little bit lower. The quality of recording was uh, was different. I mean, you know, you think about uh, where where we started and until now, it's just, you know, things have changed so drastically in how you do things. And what sounded good in 85 sometimes doesn't sound uh, as good as uh, things nowadays. I mean, everything is way more hi-fi. Even when, you're, even when you're trying to do lo-fi, you know, there's still, you know, you're recording digital. You're recording all the frequencies. Everything gets captured. So it's a whole different evolution of sound. It's crazy to me that I have a studio in my house. I started it here in 2005. It's mostly just for myself, but I, you know, I've recorded other bands here as well. And, and every now and then, it is a trip to just sit back and you know, pop in a CD that I worked on at one point and be like, man, I made this in my house. I could put this up next to that like Vandals record that I grew up on, or I could put this up next, you know, like that's, that's crazy, you know, that back then these albums are costing 20 or 30,000, which was a low budget at the time. Well, a lot of records that I did back then were even way less than that. Yeah, when we were doing all the fat record stuff, I was doing a record every two and a half weeks. Wow. So, you know, we were moving at, uh, at a lightning, lightning speed on top of, you know, well, I was working anywhere from 14 to 17 hours a day. So, you know, you'd have band members just rotating in and out, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave that console. The only time that I would leave was <laughs> literally to go to the bathroom. That was that's, it. I would eat at the console. Crazy. I would do everything at the console. I went back and rewatched the Fat Wreck documentary because... Uh, that was maybe the first interview I've seen you do and, and what kind of got me thinking about doing this a while back. And I, so I rewatched it just in preparation for this. And I remember you talking about doing a good riddance full album in the span of a week. Right. That was uh, the first one I did. Uh, God in Country. Yeah. Mike called me and said, hey, you, you want to do a record? At the time, I was chief engineer for EMI. And I was like, well, how long will it take? And he goes, oh, well, you know, it'll be eight days. And I said, we do demos that take longer than eight days. Yeah. And he goes, no, that's all, that's what the budget is. I was like, okay. As everybody really got to know each other, became very comfortable with the way that, uh, that we approached the records. And uh, I knew, for me, I, had, I knew exactly how much time uh, we needed to take on each thing to be able to finish something on time, on budget. And there was only one record that went over. And that wasn't uh, really anyone's fault. It was a time that I had worked a year and a half straight. I mean, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, my oh. birthday. And uh, Mike came, uh, came to the studio and said, hey, you know, No Effects is going to play the big Melee show in Maui and Hawaii because I think you need a uh, you need a, a couple days off. You know, you want to go with us? And I said, Well, I'm right in the middle of this record. And he goes, Oh, well, you know, just have uh, uh, your assistant take over. And I'm not a big fan of that. If a band has me working on a record, it's really hard to like pass it off to somebody else because that someone else isn't me. And, yeah, and you're putting your name on it, right? But it's also you know I think of it as well. But the band 
hired me to do it. I can't really pass it off. And it was a Fat Records band, and Mike's like, no, 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 it's totally fine. So um, the assistant that we had at the time, uh, you know, did a good job. But the thing was is that it went 10 days past the time that it should have taken because there was nobody there really to go, we're done, or no, this is all it needs. And, you know, we have to stay on time and on budget. And I was really, really budget conscious, no matter. And most of the time, I don't think the bands really knew how budget conscious I was because, you know, I'm getting a day rate. Yeah. And I'm working 14, 17 hours a day, seven days a week, but I'm not charging for that. I just, I just wanted to try to squeeze as much as we could out of a record that we can, just so I know, and this is like my total catchphrase is, uh, this is the best that it could be for the time that we had to do it. And a lot of people could listen to something and go, well, that doesn't sound good, or that's, well, this, that, and they're, you know, can critique it from A to Z, but they have no idea what was going on in the studio at that moment, at that time. And to criticize and critique something that you have no idea what it took to even get it to this point. You know, we were working on a uh, Screw 32 record and the drummer rode a skateboard up to the uh, coffee shop. On his way back, he hit a bump, twisted his ankle. Uh-huh. It happened to be his right foot. So, you know, it's like, you never know what we went through to make these records and you know the bands worked so freaking hard and were patient with me because you know i was the guy do it again don't do it again nope you're gripping too hard do it again nope this 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 this, this. but doing it at, at lightning speed so we were able to do a full record in two weeks two and a half weeks i mean mixing 17 songs in three days that's you know, fucking crazy. I, I rather put uh, that 17 songs in three days and let the band, you know, really we try to get as much as we can before that. And then it's just like, okay, here we go. And when people listen to a record, again, they, they don't know what, what's, what happened during that time. And it's not just, you know, a fat records band. This goes for every producer, engineer, mixer, band out there, any artist, anybody in entertainment or does what they do, you never know what's happening. So I think when people uh, listen to records, maybe don't be as critical. You criticize the songs. Maybe it's just not your, your cup of tea, but don't, don't criticize a band. So often we're used to hearing, you know, an album that was made over the course of six months or a year or two years or something, you know, if you're talking about mainstream records. But one thing I love about a fast-paced session is that you really are making a time capsule. You know, it is a record, a historical document of where your band was at at that time and the performances that day. Like my band, Dead Fucking Serious, we just made a record that we decided to track all the songs live, which is a little unusual for how I work. And so we made these little medleys where... We had 18 songs. Well, let's 
do it like we do at shows. We'll play maybe four songs without stopping, three songs without stopping. And can that work on a record? And so we tried that experiment and and we got all the basic tracks done in a, in a day, you know, and it was great. Um, And that's going to feel like this band, these members playing at this time. And sometimes I think it's really interesting that you can listen to, let's say uh, so long and thanks for all the shoes has a really great bite to it and a top end clarity. And then you go on, listen to, hard rock bottom from no use for a name and it's got it's a little rounder sound it's got a little more richness in the guitars you know there's just i love the fact that each one of these things is a different collaboration a different moment in time that's going to give you a different result i mean as, as someone who's interested in audio as well as punk rock that's something that is fascinating to me always absolutely and again you know when you're working that fast and going from project to project to project and trying to stay as fresh as you can and the band members uh, coming in and discussing what we're looking to get and then figuring out how to get it and that's the whole thing it's just you know this is where we're at you know love it or hate it this is this is what it is even on that first good riddance record you know we broke it down where i had uh Luke play a scratch guitar and have the drummer play and we were on two inch tape and every time he started to drift a little it's like okay roll back let's punch in and you know lay down the drums that way on every song and then went back after that and then we lay down you know bass and then lay down guitar then we did the vocals and even still with an eight day record still broke everything down in in a way to try to get the best out of each player at that time. Well, and something great about having multiple records with the producer-artist team is that you develop that rapport, and I feel like it puts the players at ease because, I mean, there is something odd about going, you know, it's one thing to book a tour and you're playing shows every night and, you know, you're always trying to give it what you got, but the record that's going to last forever. (laughs) It's a little daunting for a lot of people to put on the calendar, okay, this day at this time, I'm going to go and play this song and sing it the best I've ever sung it or whatever. And having someone that you're comfortable with, especially in those high-pressure, fast-paced environments, I feel like is going to give you a better result if you guys know each other, strengths and weaknesses, and, and... you have a better idea of how to get the best performance out of this person, that person, as opposed to someone who's just coming in cold going, hey, nice to meet you. Let's get started. Well, that was uh, that was punk and trouble. Yeah. yeah but, uh, you, know, you know, when you're in those situations, too, I mean, it, it is all about trusting, you know, the person that is behind the console. And my brief conversations with Brett Gerwitz, who introduced me to Mike, and then meeting Mike on the phone and having a conversation. Once we met at the studio, it uh, you know it definitely felt comfortable. And you know you try to you don't even try. It's like I just think that you either connect with someone or you don't. And yeah. if you don't, sometimes it's just you just have to. It maybe just takes a little bit more time. It's learning people's personalities and what works for them, what doesn't knowing how to speak to someone, you know, whether you need to be super direct or you could make jokes, which was my whole thing and bad ones at that. 
And you could ask every band. It's like I have the most cheesy jokes ever. But, you know, even in the high-stress situation, you know, know that we're all in this together no matter what. And we're going to get it, and we're going to get it the best that it could be for the time that we have to do it. And that was, and that was it. And I feel that uh, we all did a good job during that time making it happen. It was exhausting at times just trying to figure out how to get uh, from one hour to the next and it had nothing to do with being excited about the project it just was you know body mechanics it's like man i'm fucking tired <laughs> but yeah, i'm gonna man, keep going like... and, and i'm not gonna uh, i'm not gonna stop and the band's not gonna stop and it's a it's a it's the team effort we will all do what we need to do to make this the best that it could be and that's it yeah i mean it it sounds just brutal the way that you guys are cranking these things out and um yeah it was crazy there's no there's no doubt about it again you know we could talk about it but you know being in that environment and going through it um it didn't take me it, it took me uh probably five years after to start feeling the effects of of everything and just going wow how did we do that because when like, you're we just when did what yeah, yeah yeah when you're in it you're you're in it and uh, that was, I think, the, the, the most exciting part. Well, you go into your third or fourth record, and maybe some of that excitement and that, uh, uh, that oh my God, we're going into the studio, is gone. Because, you know, a lot yeah. of guys like, really just, they don't like the studio. They want to be on the road. They yep. want to be out there. They want to be playing. They want to feel the energy for, from, the, uh, from the audience that I feel is so important to uh, keep these bands you know, creating the music that they create, you know, but uh, sometimes in the studio, it's a, you know, again, it's a bit more of a sterile environment and you're looking at every little thing that goes deep. I mean, from what, what kind of pick are you using? What kind of drumsticks are you using? Are they oak? Are they hickory? Are they wood tip? Are they plastic tip? I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's one thing after another and, you know, and just trying to, again, it's all about trying to capture the, the best thing that we could capture that's going to represent the band not only now, but in the future, even though that they're going to move on as, as musicians and artists and uh, talent. One thing that uh, I thought was interesting uh, in the doc, when you mentioned the Danmar kick pad. Yep. Because when my middle school band was, you know, we're trying to find that sound and I'm going through distortion pedals to try to sound like Fletcher or, you know, whatever. And our drummer came across those and it just blew our minds of like, holy shit, that's the sound, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, and he'd put his plastic side of the beater on with his double pedal. And it was like, oh shit, you know, that's like, that's, that's a strung out, like no effects sound, you know? And so I, I kind of cracked up when you brought that up. Like, oh, yeah, we definitely went through that shit of like, you know, you audition every stick, you audition every type of strings and, and all that stuff until it just becomes, you know, second nature. Yeah, and, and, and thinking on the fly, too, because uh, on the uh, Leche Con Carne record, the No Use record, that uh, Guitar Center was out of those pads. And I'm like, okay, what what can we use? And, uh, you know, ran next door to the liquor store and... 
Uh, you know, do you have any half dollars? Do you have any silver dollars? And and duct tape those to the kick drum. It was like, yep. You know, let's let's make something. You know, just do something different instead of stuffing the uh, kick drum with uh, a pillow or you know a packing blanket. Well, let's do something different. How about let's rip up some newspaper and put that. It's just trying, you know, all kinds of different things on the fly and go. Okay, this works. Okay, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up No Use because they're one of my very favorites. And uh, I, I'm curious what it's like when you work with a band over and over again to see the growth every time they're coming to you with a new batch of songs. Like to me, when More Betterness came around, that was just like a leap ahead. It was like, oh my God, like Tony as a songwriter and a lyricist, and like the melodies on that album. And then again with Hard Rock Bottom. Um, I mean, what what is that process like when you become friends with these guys and, and you're trying to bring the best out of them and, and you know, you're just seeing the the next evolution of this band when they come back? Well, I think that... Uh uh, uh, it was probably it probably was more betterness uh, that Tony and I actually started to talk a year before we even started that project, and Tony and I were closer than 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 most. It's like Joey Cape and I. You know, Joey was uh, my realist, <laughs> and uh, you know, Joey would just always tell me exactly what he thought. And I, yeah. and I love that about him. Whether it was good or bad, I could always count on Joey. If he said something, it was, it was the truth. Never misled me, never nothing. It was awesome. And uh, same thing with, uh, with Tony. He would call me during the songwriting process, and uh, we would talk through some things and just what he was going through in writing the record. And that's great. Tony was all about, um, he wasn't, he didn't want, uh, quantity. All he was interested in, it was quality. That's why you didn't see a lot of EPs or singles coming out from no use for a name is Tony straight up said, I can't do that. It takes me a long time to write a song. And I'm glad that you noticed how good of a songwriter he was because, he really took everything that uh, that he did and put everything he could into it. And that's why, you know, there was so much respect when, uh, um, uh, when we worked together is, you know, he really took his time. And, you know, you know, there were times where, you know, the band members would be like, you know, man, let's go in, let's do a record and the whole thing. And he was, uh, he was one artist that I just can't go in and do it. I really need to take, uh, need to really take my time with these things. And, you know, a lot of respect for him for, for doing that. There are a lot of artists on fat that were very, very much that way and very meticulous and really spent a lot of time working on, on their songs and their band. And when you work with somebody like that and you build a, a personal relationship and then you work with them, you have to remember that business is business. Personal is personal. And for me, I hope that most of the bands know that because we're under such a timeline, 
I'm very direct. Yeah. So if I like it, I'll say I like it. If I don't like it, I'll say I don't like it. Let's change it or let's try this or let's try that. And never say you don't like something without being able to give a reason for it. Yes. Right? Because that way... I mean, or an alternative or something. Exactly. At least be able to lead, lead somebody down a road that they may not have thought about. So then they think of something and then go, okay, well, how about this? And then you can go, oh, I really like that. But then how about maybe trying it this way? They go, well, if we try it this way, then how about doing this? And you, you kind of, you try to, as a, as a producer, you try to get that, that momentum going until you know that you've pulled everything out of that person you can and also keeping track of the budget. I love that you open that up, too, because uh, in this show, I'm a punk rocker. Years ago, when my band broke up, I started making solo records, and, and I, I fell way deep into hip-hop. And so this show, we talk with a lot of uh, underground rap artists and punk artists. And in the hip-hop world, I don't know how much you've, uh, observed this. Oh, I've, I've, I've done quite a bit. There's a conflation with the word producer <laughs> and and beat maker. Uh, and yes. the guys who want to email you beat stems and get producer credit versus, you know, on all my records, it'll say produced by, it'll say lyrics by, and it'll say, you know, music or beats by someone else. I'm not giving them my credit for grinding through these lyrics and these melodies and these arrangements and all these things that you're talking about here in, in trying to craft and build the best possible version with these parts that you've been given, you know, and I, I, I feel so deeply a responsibility as a songwriter and as a producer to define those things separately, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Well, just because you have a Pro Tools rig does not make you a producer. Indeed. And, uh, and I think that the, the term producer, people don't realize that one of your responsibilities is actually making sure your budget stays on track. And I can, yeah. oh, I keep going back to that. But when Mike would give me a budget and go, okay, it has to be done by this, this time, there was no, oh, but we we're going to go. No, it was like, okay, this has to be done by this time. It's not, we don't have endless amounts of time to do all this. And people that uh, maybe write a beat, well, maybe they're more the writer of that beat, not the producer of the project. Yeah. So yeah, it, the term gets thrown around quite a bit. And then what's considered songwriting and what's considered producing, and what's you know, it's you know, there's uh, we've come to a point probably about a decade ago, where that whole thing, the lines got blurred quite a bit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just really interesting and in trying to figure out, you know, when you're working with a band, you know, I just finished up a band called Bisto Blanco. And by the time that we got done, you know, there was quite a bit of songwriting on my end of the, uh, of the project. And, you know, I call the, uh, call the band and they're like well absolutely you're getting songwriting credit great and it was like Ex thank you you know and yeah. you know and i just did the new 10-foot pole record and you know nice called, yeah, i called dennis and i was like look you know you know there was a you know there's a lot of songwriting done and i'm not talking about uh 
uh, just changing a drum beat or or whatnot. But you know, there was there was songwriting done. He heard it. Everybody that was involved in it heard it, and no problem with the, with knowing what the difference was. And that's the whole thing is knowing the difference between what a producer does and what an engineer does and what a songwriter does. And all that just depends on you know how in depth you want to get and what your style is and what your time frame is. I mean, you know, there's the Rick Rubin guys who kind of sit back on the couch and you know make sure the like the vibe is good and that it's honest and whatever. And then there's the John Feldman guys who are like, no, let's sit down and write some songs, guys. Let's do it. You know, right? And, and, and John uh, and John is the uh, is the extreme. I mean, you know, now there's like somebody who um, is is ridiculously talented. Because, oh yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, John and I had a conversation back in, uh, must've been 2007. And it was about a Goldfinger record. And I'm like, man, why don't you just mix it? It's like, you're yeah. freaking great. You know, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, you know, you listen to everything he does and, and especially now his pop sensibility. It's like, you know, yep. He's freaking awesome. I mean, even when I was in high school, I could pick out a John Feldman record. It's kind of like when you see that Epitaph logo or that Fat logo or that Nitro Records logo on, on an album, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s. You're like, well, this is just going to be good. I'll buy it, you know. And, mm -hmm. and yep. with, with Feldy, you could hear it like in the snares. <laughs> I don't. Uh, well, everything was, was tuned up a little higher, right? It was, yep. it was, and yeah. I remember when the used came out. It, it sounds like Darren Snare on like a screamo record, like this is crazy, and then you know, Mest and all those other bands he started putting out. It's like okay, yeah. Even in high school, I was like putting together like, all right, these are the components that make like a John Feldman template, you know, and uh, that that stuff's always fascinating to me. Yeah, everybody has, you know, my mentor Max Norman. I'd call him up and go, man, I'm having a hard time with this. And then he would tell me, oh, well, just try this or just try that. And he would give me all this advice. And uh, one night at the dinner table, I was like, and I am so surprised that, you know, you would, you would tell me, you know, well, just do this and do that. And you're giving me away your almost like secrets. And he's like, yeah, right. and he goes, dude, he goes, you know, you don't have my ears. And he's totally right. We all hear things differently. That's true. And, you know, you, know, you could give me, uh, I could tell you how I do something and then you could try it and it's not going to work for you. And you might have to alter that a little bit. And Yeah, great, uh, great example is I had this record uh, maybe five, six years ago that was kind of, it was kind of just like a production experiment was kind of the point of it. Uh, it was a lot of like, kind of hip-hop influenced in the way that i would sample this like i would take this black sabbath riff and i would alter it and replay it and we would take a drum part from this nine inch nails song and put you know whatever so we we're piecing together arrangements like this and just trying to make the biggest nastiest guitar layered you know fattest drums gnarliest you know distorted bass that i could come up with and when i finished the mix i was shopping around different people to master it and i I'd, I'd have them do like a song and you know i remember going to studios and they'd be like so this is technically right 
But like what this project needs is not that. Like I don't need it to be cleaned up. It's supposed to be, I mean, there's 25 guitars in that section. I don't need you to cut it out, you know? (laughs) Like sometimes it's uh, just got to be the right marriage of, um, you know, the person for the job or the tool for the job, you know? Oh, 100%. I think the the best mastering guys are are the ones that listen to it and they don't they're not trying to remix it. Yeah. And exactly. And I think that uh some people you send it to and you get it back and go what happened? And I will tell you, you know, because we were we were moving again at lightning pace back in the day and we would finish with a project at 5 a.m send the uh the half inch tapes or the you know whatever our mix format was it was half inch or quarter inch to get mastered stick it on a plane somebody picks it up at 9 a.m you know it's at the mastering house by 11 a.m and the record's getting mastered there are times man you get your your record back and go what happened who did this what did did i make this you know (laughs) there's nothing that you could do about it it's like well, it's done. It's uh, it has to it has to go to the pressing plant today. We can't change yeah. it. And and that's and that kind of goes back to uh, the earlier conversation that you know people can make uh, comments about a record, but you have no idea of what it took to get it to a certain point. And then at the very end, you have someone that's taking what everybody worked so hard on, and they could possibly change it. And you're not even there. And you're not even there, and you and you don't have time to go. No, 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 no. Listen to it, unmastered, and just get the level up. Balance out the songs. You cue it where uh, where it's deficient, and let's be done. But don't yeah. try to remix it. Yeah, and that, that's that's something that I I tell bands. You know, look, there are people with more technical knowledge, more gear assets. There are people who have all these other qualities that uh, maybe I don't have. You're coming to make a record at my house. Let's be real. But there's probably nobody else who understands this kind of music (laughs) in this area like I do. So take that for what it's worth. It's like I'm not out there seeking out projects. I could care less if I produce one band this year if that's not my own that's fine i've got my plate full of my own shit but if we find a good connection and we know what the other person's talking about then that's going to go farther than you know i've recorded in much nicer places that turned out like shit because the guy's used to doing funk he doesn't know what i'm talking about when i'm trying to get my drum sound and and it just sometimes it just doesn't translate all the gear in the world can't save the stylistic disconnect, you know? There are people that look at the technology and they look at, oh my God, I have a hundred EQs. I have a hundred compressors. I have 300 flangers and reverbs and all of these things. And they forget about foundation. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, I could send you a session and you'll pull up the drums they all sound pretty good. They're not overdone. They're not underdone. They just sit. I let. I, I try to capture everything the the best that we can to be able to. If I want to manipulate it more later, 
or somebody has an idea and we need to change something. But I try not to overuse everything. If you know, all of my sessions have three plugins on them. You know, yeah. they have two different EQs and a compressor. Every single channel. I, I look at my Pro Tool system and I use it like a console. I don't go, well, an API would sound good on, on, on this thing or a SSL would sound good on this. And, you know, you, I, you know, bounce around. Next thing you know, you, you're, you're mixing on six different consoles. For me, yeah. that, doesn't, that doesn't work for me. And it works for me. For other people, it just doesn't work for me. I, you know, I came from a, a console standpoint. And for me, you know, using the same EQ on everything, it's a, it's a weird visual. Everything is pushing and pulling the same way. Every channel yeah. is pushing and pulling the same way. And if I put something else on it, I feel like all of a sudden that's pushing in a different way. I mean, there are things that, uh, that need to be specialized, you know, absolutely. But all of my mixed templates all have the same thing on them. That's where I start. And then if I need to dive in any further, then I'll go somewhere else. But I don't think that, well, you know, this kick drum, okay, that needs a Neve. Oh, this snare drum, okay, that needs an API. It, I, I, I can't do that. You know, you, you, know you, just, you need to feel it. You need to be able to absorb the mix and be able to uh, uh, kind of enjoy the... Um, the process of listening to the music, not getting caught up into what plugin should I use. Yes. And I, I think that if the pre-production is done right, which which to me, it's not always a luxury that you have. But <laughs> Definitely that's not. The most, yeah, but that's the most important part in my eyes is, you know... And I talked to on the the last episode. Uh, I had a great drummer friend of mine. We we disagreed on this a little bit, but I feel like every piece of gear that I have, and some of them I have a very deep, long time connection with, but it's just a tool to get the job done for the song. You know, the, and and it's using the right combination of tools to make that happen the most efficiently. You know, and like with this record that I was talking about, we recorded eighteen songs in a day. Well, over the course of weeks, we've got everything set up in here. We're tracking rehearsals and we're going, okay, well, let's adjust this here. Well, let's try this other speaker instead. And let's, you know, and, and getting all that shit done and out of the way ahead of time. So when it came down to make music, we could just make music. And the only thing we had to think about was the songs, you know, and, and there was something very freeing in that, especially when you're self-producing, that I don't have to constantly be jumping back and forth wearing quite as many hats in not letting the gear be the most important thing and letting the, the performances be the most important thing. Absolutely. I think that is very, very well said. You know, it can, took me a it long is, time to arrive at that conclusion, well, but that's what I'm at now. <laughs> you know, for me, it's, it's, a, it's a couple things. One, it is all about the performance, and we, and we know that by, you know, the music that we grew up with. And the other thing is tempo. Yeah. It's funny because you work hard on making sure that the tempo is right when you're recording the song. And then you go see the band live and they're playing it 10, 10 beats per minute faster. Or yes. 50, and it's like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, it just needs more energy. It's like, if it needed more energy, we would have done that on the record. 
I said, you actually just took your song and it turned it into a blur and it sounds like a mess and it doesn't have the power. And I understand that, you know, you want to get out there and you, you have that adrenaline flowing and everything has to be a billion miles an hour. But, uh, you know, that's not necessarily the case. I remember at the Warp Tour when uh, Sum 41 played and it mm -hmm. was the funniest thing that, uh, you know, I'm walking, uh, walking past the stage out to uh, the front of house console with a friend of mine and I stopped and I looked at, uh, at who was playing and I didn't know who it was Sum 41 at the time and I stood there, I'm like, I turned to my friend, I'm like, man, this band sounds great. I go, who is it? And he goes, oh, it's some 41. I'm like, man, it's like everything feels right. It's like nothing feels too fast or sloppy or this or that. And the singer is like all over the place, right? And, you know, jumping around, you know, the whole band. And it's like everything was just like freaking killer. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, they, you know, they, they play to a click track. Hell yeah. And because it, it, their songs, you know, you know, you can listen to it and go, man, this is great. It just all felt right. And it's like, you know, it's, it's all about the energy. You know, you have to capture that. Yeah. And it, it depends on the project, too, because um, in my band, our thing is, is very relentless, high energy. You know, we play 20 minute sets, you know, those 18 songs are 18 and a half minutes of music you know that's all it is and so um you know we'll play a bunch of songs without stopping we'll play them really fucking fast and something i've learned even in hip-hop is that i road test the songs i will record the demo when i wrote it you know get to know it figure out oh i want to change this line i want to do whatever you know you've got a solid revision but at least once i'll play it on stage because that will have meant then I had to rehearse it. I had to get my breathing spots right. You know, if you're playing with the band, you got to get your tempo right, you know, how it's going to be. And then you play it on stage. And usually there are going to be those songs where, you know, if you look back, oh, our last record, man, that song's really slow. We play that a lot faster now. That's weird. You know, and, and making sure that the permanent version of that song is in line with how you actually play it you know, <laughs> and not just showing up to the studio and winging it. You know, I think that's super important. Marrying your live show with your record, you know, and making that, that song the statement that it is supposed to be in the first place instead of changing it later. Oh, and absolutely. Well, we were in doing a petting zoo. I think, yeah, I think it was petting zoo with a freedom, like a shopping cart. Yeah. So we, uh, we did something that we didn't do on uh, on the record before, or actually any of the records where we actually did pre-production. So we flew up to uh, uh, Hefe's house, and he had a a little mixing board. And I brought an ADAT, and we recorded all the songs. And you know, everybody's working on the songs, and you know, it's all developing and whatnot. And Mike, every time Mike, you know, after that, every time Mike would come into the studio before we actually did the record, I, he would play that song on the acoustic guitar for me. I, he would walk in and I would stop the session. I'd be like, play my song. And he would just be <laughs> like, okay. And 
he would play the song for me. And then he'd come in a couple days later, I'd be like, here's an acoustic guitar, play the song. I love that song. I don't know if something about him playing that on the acoustic guitar was, was it was just so cool. And then we, you know, we, then we had the demo and we went in to record the song. So we go in and lay down drums, lay down all the instruments. Mike goes out to sing the song. And I'm like, man, something just doesn't seem right. Let's run it again, you know, be brat Mike. Don't try to sing it. Try to, you know, be brattier on it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he goes in and, you know, he does it again. I'm like, man, there's something wrong. I, I you know, it just doesn't feel right. So um, I said, you know, let's just work on the first couple lines. So, you know, we spent five minutes, you know, working on the first few lines. And I stop and I'm like, can you come in the control room for a sec? So he comes in and he sits down and he goes, what's wrong? And I go, man, there's something wrong. I go, I can't explain it. All I know is you've been playing the song for me for six months. Every time yeah. you come, he goes, I know. <laughs> well, it's, there's something, there's something going on and I don't know what it is. It's, you know, all the parts are right. Da, 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 da. And he goes, everything is like exactly you know, exactly like the demo and exactly like I play it for you on the acoustic guitar. The only thing I did was change the key. <laughs> I'm like, you did what? And he goes, yeah, I changed the key of the song because, but everything else is the same. I'm like, well, we have to re-record all the instruments. Yeah. He goes, why? He goes, it sounds fine. I'm like, no, I go, it, it, it totally, it lost its, its, its energy. It lost its, it, that, it lost that thing. And uh, we went back in and, you know, re-recorded the guitars and re-recorded the bass, which, of course, takes him, you know, five minutes to do because he's a killer bass player. And yeah. he is. He, I think that he's one of the uh, underrated bass players out there. He's, like, oh, it's really, insane. really I good. Mean... But uh, we re-recorded it. He gets out there, starts singing, and I'm like, oh, yeah. This is how it should be. It's, it's tempo, it's energy, it's, you know, people being comfortable with the song, it's the key of the song. There's so much goes into it, and you don't know until you start really diving in and playing around. But, you know, you couldn't do what you did at your place if you didn't go through the pre-production. Totally. You couldn't have just walked in and go, hey, here are the songs, you know, let's, uh, let's play them. Yeah, there's no way. I mean, we tried some some bold shit like that, you know. We we did an EP after our hiatus. We hadn't played in a room for four years. Everyone moved to different towns, and the guys came back. And we ran through everything a couple of times, and uh, we recorded it the next day. And that was that. Sometimes it's just it's just the energy and the chemistry. Uh, is enough, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah, a lot of times you really, really have to, um, take the time and consider all the shit so you don't have to deal with that during the session. Absolutely. Now, um, before we get too far along here, cause I don't know how much time you've got. Uh, I, I, I um, could talk for at least 30 more seconds. No, I'm fine. <laughs> I keep on going. Um, well, uh, I, I would love to, uh, dive in a little bit to the decline. I mean, that, that's, um, something that I came across by accident was at like a CD store at the mall, Camelot records or whatever it was called. And I saw it in the, 
on the rack and it didn't have a track listing. And I was like, well, that's weird. And uh, I bought it, took it over to my drummer's house, and uh, we're like, that is only one song. <laughs> but it's full length. What the fuck is, you know, and, and just sitting there with him, you know, even when we were, you know, that age, uh, we are writing and, and, and recording music and thinking about arrangement and things like this, you know. And so to sit down and listen to that thing unfold and continue to, okay, it's ringing out here, so that's going to be the end of this one. And holy shit, no, that's, that was a turn. Okay, that was a twist. Okay, it's still going. And, you know, it was just fascinating. Um, I, it, it, to me, is the greatest accomplishment in, in production and songwriting um, and just pure performances um, in punk rock. To me, that's that's my holy grail. And I haven't done it in a while, but 10 years ago, I actually made an acoustic arrangement and started performing it. If you, if you go to my YouTube channel, it's way, way more fucking, way more popular than any of my actual songs are on there. <laughs> um, like, the amount of people that are drawn to even my crappy rendition of that song you know just just shows the staying power of that track i don't know i i read years ago on their website that it was like this was the worst thing ever it was a terrible session it was multiple sessions to try to fix this and get it right i mean as somebody who was there in the thick of it i mean when you look back on that session how do you feel about it what website did you read this on? On the no effects no, that's, uh, uh, dot no, org or whatever? No. Years it, ago. It was, uh, uh, you know, I remember that session actually very well, and uh, I'll explain why in a second. But uh, that session actually, just putting it together was uh, probably the hardest part. Mike had, uh, he knew exactly what he wanted to do and what he wanted to accomplish, and we you know, we just work through it, but um, as far as a session goes, it wasn't any harder or easier than anything else that we've really ever done. Wow! Yeah, that's so surprising. I, I, well, I'm surprised that uh, that you know that's what was said because I would say that as a, as an overall, I don't think that anybody had any kind of a difficult time. Well, I'll say that uh, the reason why I remember that record so well is it was the first time that uh, I ever used Pro Tools. Oh, okay. So if you remember uh, way back in, what, 2000, whenever it was, 2001, I can't remember when we did that. It was, I was, uh, I was 99. Yeah, 99. I was eight years old. Um, <laughs> that, uh, uh, we did we did all the drums to two inch tape. Yeah. So Eric would do uh, do his part, and before he would go into the next uh, section, you know, I was just I was just editing tape, just putting it all together. And if you if you know anything about the song, which you do, it's over eighteen minutes. So I mean, are you are you guys recording this in movements? In then? exactly, you and that's exactly how we did it. So we, uh, you know, scratch guitar and drums laying down the first movement. Okay, let that hold out long enough and even a little longer than you think, and then we'll stop, go back, punch in whatever, uh, you know, drums needed to be uh, adjusted, and then 
move on to the next movement. And then before we would go on to the third movement, we'd go back and Mike would sing along with it. And oh, okay. in between song one and song two, I would just start slicing tape until we, we got it to the point where it felt right to him. So when they're bringing this to you, has it ever been played front to back at this point? Oh, no. Or is it they're just going all these little, okay, we've got all these little uh, scenes and we're going to yeah, tie it Mike all together. Mike already had later. all the songs written. Back then, you know, all the pre-production was done in the studio. I mean, there was sometimes yeah. that he would go in and he would rehearse the band beforehand, but, you know, nothing really was 100% set until we got into the studio and started to work on it. But he had a, you know, he always has a really good idea of what he's looking for. Yeah. It was all about just the timing of the segues. Yeah. We're slicing, you know, slicing uh, every song together, and we're now on to the last movement. But I can't fit any more tape on the tape reel (laughs) because those things will only, you know, a a reel of uh, two inch tape was normally like 16 minutes and 38 seconds, something like that. And um, I put on another roll of tape, hoping that we'd be able to finish the last part of it. And it, it didn't work. You're like, does it have to fade out for so fucking long? (laughs) Right. Exactly. So, uh, so we, we stopped the session, and Mike goes, well, what are we going to do? And I said, oh, well, you know, tomorrow we'll call uh, the, um, the supply house and get an empty reel of two-inch tape. And uh, uh, he goes, okay. So I call up, I call the place. They're on back order. The, the oversized oh, empty fuck. reels, which are the 14-inch reels, were out of stock for two weeks. So I call, I call Mike, and I'm like, well, we're kind of in this, uh, this gray zone right now. So let's track the last song today, which will take, you know, 45 minutes maybe for the drums, right? It's like, you know, and we'll start recording bass, and then I'm going to buy this thing called Pro Tools. <laughs> I've never used it before. But it will, you know, we'll be able to get all these tracks. And he's like, you're, I don't know what you're talking about. He goes, you know, as long as we're going to be able to do this. I was like, we'll be able to be full swing uh, in recording with no hitches in another day. So I... Um, so what, you stay up all fucking night configuring this thing? <laughs> no, so, uh, no, I did one better, which was awesome. That uh, my assistant at the time, Adam Kramer is freaking awesome. I mean, I could not get through all of my sessions uh, that I did uh, with him, uh, that I did without him because he really, um, he really kept me going. When I, when I was, when I say I was in there for 14 hours straight, Adam would come in. I would leave. We had this thing. I would leave my wallet on the, on the console. Adam would come in when it was lunchtime he would take my, grab my wallet, he would grab my credit card, he would leave, he would come back with something to eat. Because he knew <laughs> that I didn't, I could make decisions all day long in the studio. Ask me what I want to eat, it's like, I don't know, just get me something. So he, yeah, just so he stopped, fucking feed me, I gotta think about yeah. these drums. <laughs> I, I, so he stopped asking me, which was awesome. And you know, next thing you know, he would show up with you know, 
food and cupcakes because I was on a total <laughs> cupcake kit. But anyhow, I uh, had Adam come in the control room and I said, look, I, I need you to call uh, Tim, who was the rep over at this audio place, and get this thing called Pro Tools and get a computer that, you know, because you need a computer to be able to run this. And yeah. I need all this working by tomorrow. And he goes, okay. Wow. And uh, he comes uh, he, he comes in, the bill for for this was like insane. And, and I paid for it. I was like, you know, this wasn't a studio cost. It wasn't a no effects cost. It was, a, it was I'm buying this thing because this is what we need. And yeah. uh, I came in the next day, the next morning, and Adam goes, okay, so... Uh, this is how we're going to take everything from the tape machine and put it on to, to Pro Tools. And it's this and this and this. And he explained it to me, very, very basic form. I was like, okay, so let's do it. So we transfer everything that we did over to Pro Tools. And then I took the last part of the decline and edited it up to the song so that was the only song that uh was uh edited in pro tools i was freaking out because listening to two inch tape and then listening to pro tools it sounded different yeah because we uh, we were running at what uh 16 bit 44 one even if it was 48 the converters back then those black converters were like not the best but it was it enabled us to do the whole decline, and during that time, uh, you know, everybody was uh, patient, and and next thing you know, you have fifty tracks of of stuff, and then it's time to mix. Yeah, but that but that's how we ended up putting it together. But that that record was the very first record that we uh, did on um, on Pro Tools. That's crazy. I uh, I, I while you were. Uh uh, telling the story, I actually found the old website. The old NoFX website is still on here. And uh, there's like a tiny little blurb under every album. And it, I found the thing that I was thinking of. Um, so here's a quote from the website. It says, Nightmare. Recording this fuck was a total nightmare. Writing it was a total nightmare. I'm glad we did it, but I wouldn't do it again. We went into the studio three different times and added stuff and remixed and remastered four times. It says, uh, take my advice, never try this song at home. <laughs> Clearly I didn't listen to the last part. But <laughs> Well, I think that uh, probably writing it... Uh took a lot of uh a lot of thought process i mean i think a lot went into it for mike and you know coming up with all those different different parts and then hoping that they would all work you know yeah you know but there was uh from from my recollection we remastered the record once <clears throat> and mm -hmm. you know there was a uh, a part on the end that we debated and after the record was mastered get the call hey can we put that part on there and i was like oh. absolutely so came in did the you know did the new part and then off to mastering it went but people's perceptions of what was happening in there maybe uh differed from mine you know again 
you know, with Mike having to write all that stuff, it was probably a little more difficult for him because that's a yeah. that's a you know that was a a ton of work to be able to think all of those things through. It it doesn't sound like puzzle pieces though. I mean, we're I mean, are you tracking like okay, we're gonna do the drums, you know, for each of these songs today and tomorrow, or is it like exactly. we're gonna do this whole song top no, to bottom, no, no, then no, we're gonna no, do no. that whole song top no, to bottom? Okay, that was I, the whole thing. Like, there's no fucking way. <laughs> no, you know, we laid it all out. And that's why we had to leave uh, some of the segues a little bit longer than they needed to be. Mm-hmm. And then before we moved on to song, like I was saying, move on to song three, we would listen to the segue between songs one and two to make sure that that felt right before I cut tape, put it together, before we moved on to song three. And then once we finished song three, we listened to the segue between one and two. That's crazy to me just to think that that was cut on tape. Oh, yeah. I mean, cutting tape was <laughs> that like song fun. Was, that was the only way that we could do it. Yeah. Or at least that was the only way that I could think of doing it. You, know, you could put all the songs, uh, you could record them all separate, but how do you know until you go into mastering where you actually have a two-track mix and then you have to start crossfading it and hoping it all works? It was like yeah. the only way that we could do it is, all right, we just have to get it, get it right now. And that was the whole thing. It was just, you know, you had to be fearless. You had to get that razor blade out, make your marks, you cut it. Man, Done. that's great. There was no undo back then. Seriously, yeah. Which was it's, it's, awesome. It's really interesting, though, just having this, this, I mean, new to me anyway, new perspective on, uh, on how that that, massive piece of music was was constructed because i mean even now i mean several years ago they put out that like live uh dvd of them playing it you know and it's just just like i uh it was so daunting for me to even transcribe and and put together a, a one guitar version you know it's just i I couldn't even imagine what that session would have been like you know throwing <laughs> drummers throwing sticks across the room and shit um but uh, uh no, yeah it makes it, a lot of sense yeah you, know, uh, you know i remember uh when i had moved to arizona and uh went to go see uh no effects play at the uh the marquee out there and mike uh goes uh, i have a surprise for you and they played the they played the, the decline for the you know first time that I heard it from top to bottom and I was just like wow fuck yeah man I mean that's like you know, that's a that's a huge accomplishment that's a lot of stuff going on yeah and I I like how they'll they'll give Hefe the that modified trombone trumpet thing mm-hmm. and hand off his guitar to somebody else at the end. Like, it's really clever how they did it. Yeah. Those guys don't get enough credit for the musicianship. You know, like you were saying about Mike's bass playing, I mean, they just, (laughs) really great players in that band. I mean, from from the drums all the way up. Absolutely. Well, Eric Sandin has the best, to me, the best foot. Yeah. I mean, those... Yeah, uh, I mean, when I think of the punk beat, I think of him. I wouldn't call myself a drummer anymore, but uh, I used to be... Uh, I used to be okay. We would have, uh, I remember we had a speed contest once. Mm-hmm. I was like, 
Let's see. I mean, obviously he was going to slaughter me, but uh, I wanted to give it <laughs> yeah, a bad yeah. old college try. And I was eight years old. And he... Uh, <laughs> You're uh, a prodigy. Right? And uh, so I sat down, and I played it, and then then he played it faster, and then I played it faster, and then he played it faster, and then I was like, oh, man, i got to play it faster. And I got, I started to tense up a little bit, and I tried to play it fast, and then he sat down, and the faster uh, the, the beat got, the more relaxed he he got and i'm like yeah oh my i go i don't know how you could do that you know and be that relaxed it was like it was definitely an art form i mean he's definitely uh um uh, definitely a a master at that well it's like that uh, movie whiplash when he's trying to get that up tempo swing down you know right and he's trying to single stroke that ride pattern and he's giving himself fucking blisters. I'm like, dude, that's <laughs> like when you try to show a musician how to play a punk song, whether it's on the guitar or the drums or whatever, you know, I feel like they have that indication of like, okay, well, if the tempo is up this high, then I have to do, it's like, no, it's a totally different, you know, it's the, <laughs> uh, you're not having to hit every single fucking thing to make that. Uh, you know, machine gun fire sound. You know, it's uh, it's got a different sort of bounce to it. You know, yeah, it's a it's a thing and it's an art. I mean, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of people that would listen to uh, punk rock and be like, well, that's easy. Well, that's easy. Yeah. Well, that's right. it's like no, not as easy as you may think. And then you listen to them try to play it, and it's just like. No, that's not even close. Yeah. It's like speed metal. It's its own thing. Everything, it's an art form. And speaking of metal, uh, one of the things that is really interesting about that time in music is that there was a lot of cross-pollination. And I feel like as it got into the 2000s, it became a more gimmicky thing in that it'd be like, we're a pop-punk band that does breakdowns, you know, and so it's, it's like stuff like that that just seemed um, like, well, guys, what if, you know, versus like that big wig record uh, that you made, Invitation to Tragedy or something. You know, there's a natural, or even you Did mentioned Song 41. I think I, I think I mixed that. Did I record that? Oh, my God. Fuck, Sorry, I Tom. Know. I don't remember. I, I, I know. <laughs> I'm gonna get a call I knew, from him. I knew that it was like one it. that you. I knew that it was one that you would, at the very least, mix. But um, or propaganda, or yeah, you know, a lot of these bands. I mean, they have such a natural, like, oh, these are just our influences. We're just, we're just playing what we know, you know. And and, and I loved some of the shit coming out at that time. I, I know you did a Phoenix TX record. Um, the one after that, they all, all of a sudden started embracing, like, oh yeah, but we also listen to Master of Puppets, you know. Like, you by know, the way, the, cool uh, the, that happening. record that I did for uh, for Phoenix TX, that's when I actually met uh, Jerry Finn. Oh really? Yeah. So uh, I got a call from MCA Records. They asked me if uh, I would be interested in working with uh, one of their bands, which was Phoenix TX, and uh, they need two more songs. And I was like, sure. So uh, we went over to the studio called Royal Tone that's, uh, in, that was in North Hollywood, 
and Jerry was in their tracking room mixing their record. And I was in the mix room tracking the two songs. So we were doing drums in the in this like little vocal booth. And uh, <laughs> it was like, well, I go, wow, this is like totally ass backwards. So uh, um, Jerry ran out of uh, time mixing the record. He had to hop on another record, but he was only halfway done with his uh, with the songs <laughs> that he was supposed to do. He's got to get that Blink-182 money. <laughs> hey, right? So, uh, again, it was one of those things that I had to go to mastering in three days. Oh. So they asked me if I would be interested in, in mixing the seven songs plus the two songs that, uh, that I produced. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no problem. And I lived up in the Bay Area at that time. So... I had to drive home, woke up the next day. Now I only have two days to mix eight songs. God. And, you know, getting everything set up for the mix. And so then and I only had you like... you didn't necessarily record either. Right. You know, I mean, Jerry had, uh, you know, he had uh, PA speakers out in the, uh, in the big tracking room to, uh, to yeah. reamp the, you know, to get the room sound for the drums and all of that. And I was just like, Okay, I'll 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 do it. So uh, that was like, you know, that was totally insane because you know if you you know you look at okay, you have eight songs to mix in a day and a half. How many hours can you work on each song to be able to have the messenger pick up the masters, put them on a plane, so they'll pick them up at five a.m., take it to the airport put it on a plane and then somebody will pick it up in LA to take it to mastering by 11 a.m. Jeez. It was totally insane. That's what I mean. It's like, you know, nobody will know what, uh, what people go through making records and in, in the situations that they're in. And there was no band members there. So, you know, you're listening to the tracks for the first time going, okay, you know, just do this. And okay, <laughs> next song. Okay, let's do this. And, you know, winging it. Yep. And then, you know, Adam heads home at, uh, at 2 a.m. I check out of the studio at 5 a.m. Uh, the first night, you know, I get back to the studio at 11 a.m. the next day and you're mixing right up until 5 a.m. where it's like, you just got to let it go. Yeah. Right. But yeah, man. At a certain yeah. point, it's just done. Yeah, no, and and that's it, you know. But the uh, super fun band and uh, and Jerry was a total riot when we were talking. It's like, you know, again, another uh, you know, uh, another true true talent. His name will will not be forgotten. Definitely not. So many records that I you know still have in rotation to this day. Oh yeah. So. Uh, I guess just a couple of last couple things before we uh, wrap. Um, I'm not a rapper, though. I mean, I can rap. I am. <laughs> but I am. So you know, I mean, I, I could um, I could fake rap, but uh, you know, that would be a crime. Nobody needs that. Right? There's enough of those on the radio. <laughs> well, I figure you know, I just I, I just want to be a part of the uh, the majority. I'm okay with not being. <laughs> All right, I, you know, you had you had your chance. Yeah, I guess I'll look back on it as a lost opportunity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, RG rapper, it's just not going to make it. DJ Green. Well, 
My friend, uh, my friend Gradient is changing his name to Gradient, comma rapper because his Spotify playlist keeps getting clogged with bad <laughs> bands named Gradient. So, um, yeah, oh my that's God, what that that's reminded awesome. me of. So I just uh, I noticed as someone who has religiously read the liner notes, you know, since uh, I was a kid, I've seen your name on fewer records in the last few years. I was happy to see you in the credits for that last Strung Out uh, album, but I was yeah, like, what does band counselor? Yeah. yeah, I was like, what does band counselor mean? <laughs> that was pretty funny. One of many credits. I was in the right place at the right time. You're like, Jordan, just do one more album, you bastard. Yeah. Come on, <laughs> get along. <laughs> no, um, I just wanted to uh, know where you're at these days. I looked up Crush Recording. I saw Validus. Am I saying that right? Correct. Are you still working at Motor Studios as well? No, I haven't been at uh, at Motor since 2004. That was uh, the that was. Fuck. Yeah. I'm out of the loop. Yeah. Okay. Where have you been? <laughs> I've been here in Oregon. I don't well, know. You know, it's a uh, nice place to be though. Where are you at these days? Well, uh, you know, from uh, from you know when I lived up in the Bay Area, you know, I had made a change for. A multitude of reasons, uh, a lot of them very personal that I uh, won't get into, but it just seemed like it was the, the right thing to do for my family at that time. And Arizona had uh, some really, really amazing opportunities and still able to fly back and forth to the Bay Area and do records and the whole thing. My friend uh, Steve uh, Wilmette out there and I did uh, Guitar Hero 3 through 7, did, you know, all the re-records and they're like giving you the master tracks no, on those no, things and no no it's like rock you like a hurricane uh-huh. on uh, guitar hero three that was all us really yep that was all the re-record no shit yep and that's what we did we did uh i think 20 25 songs for uh guitar hero three that's surprising to me because I know that there's stuff out there that's like the remastered Death Magnetic from all the Guitar Hero, you know, isolated tracks or certain things like that. Like, oh, John Bonham drum tracks from Guitar Hero, you know. So I had no idea that um, some of that stuff was actually being re-recorded. Oh, yeah. A lot more than you may think. Is that just when they were when the masters were unavailable or well, how does that bands didn't realize and record labels didn't realize how much of a, uh, a selling point and a, a promotional value that uh, this game would offer. I mean, no, nobody knew that within the first three months it was going to sell 18 million copies. Whew. I knew that shit was everywhere, but wow. Right. And bands were like, well, we're not going to give you our masters. Well, then we'll just, have somebody re-record it. And there was a company that was doing it. They heard what we did. They were like, oh no, you guys are finishing the rest of the game. And, it, wow. and then here's a, uh, a, a funny little story that the first song, our tester was uh, for Alice Cooper, a mm-hmm. song called School's Out. Yeah. Company calls us, and, you know, calls Steve, uh, Wilmette. We, uh, we get the Alice song and, it's like, okay, if they want it to sound exactly like this, and Steve was really good about investigating what gu- what guitars he was a, you know, Steve's a killer guitar player and a really good producer, and 
you know, investigated what guitars, what amplifiers, you know, we investigated the drums and uh, the type of room and, okay, what kind of uh, reverbs were they using back when they actually originally recorded the song? I mean, we did as much investigative work as we possibly could to, to Well, yeah, that's it, where my right? mind goes of like, well, fuck, if we're talking about all these records you just cranked out, I mean, well, God, what is the pre-production process per song on something like this where you're trying yeah. to... Be like being in Weird Al's band. It's like, oh shit, we have to come up with what now? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, it, it was uh, it was crazy because we would track everything in a day, and then the next day I would start to mix. And as I would start to mix, Steve would be at home, and I would, you know, I'd listen to the left speaker. Then I would listen to the right speaker and just take it like ten seconds at a time, just to make sure that all the tones were matching. And then all of a sudden, you know, you would hear uh, a shaker on, you know, pop in for like two bars and be like, oh my God, what's that? Hey, Steve, uh, on bar, you know, 24 through 27, there's a shaker. And he's like, really? And then he would listen to it and he's like, oh, okay, I'll send that over to you. And then I would continue to mix. And that's how we would go through songs. He would be at home and whatever, uh, whatever elements we might have overlooked, he would do those elements, send them over to me, and I would insert them in the mix. But total, we would have to do everything from top to bottom in two days. Wow. And stem everything out in their stemming specs as well. So, yeah, it was crazy. But, you know, the, the funny part of the story is three, four years later, it was probably back in 2009, uh, Steve gets a call from, uh, from Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin, you know, of course, a massive massive producer and he goes we would like you to do the song poison by alice cooper as a re-record but alice will come over and uh and sing the song oh, and uh shit. it was like okay cool and uh so steve tells me and i was like you do realize that that's a desmond child production and desmond is known for a gazillion backgrounds so the one song that we have to do is the one that is like a gazillion <laughs> backgrounds. Yeah, you have to remember now, this is, you know, Guitar Hero 3 has probably been out for, you know, like two or three years or whatever it was. So long story short, Steve uh, ends up getting the exact background section that did the original, minus a couple people. So we get the, wow. the vocal stems for the backgrounds, and we pull them up, and it's just like, oh, my God, this is like absolutely insane this is so good at the time i had just shut down my studio in arizona moved everything into my house because i thought my house was going to sell quickly and i was going to move back to la and alice comes over to the house and you know, i met alice you know when we did pre-production on the on the trashed record so comes over to the house and he sits down and uh he goes these video games are are huge and you know he wasn't uh hip to how big these video games were all he knows is he goes yeah you know i went to the mailbox one day and i ended up getting this check and it was like oh my god you know it was you know because <laughs> you know look at you know i don't know what the percentage was that that's an artist gets on 
one of those video games, but you know, <laughs> better than Spotify, I'll tell well, you that. <laughs> there you go, exactly. And on top of it too, that just in the first four months, it had sold eighteen million. I I don't know what the total rate. So you know, there was probably a, a hefty check. What Alice didn't realize was the song that he ended up getting the money for for being the writer. He didn't sing on. Oh. His band didn't do. That was the recording that Steve and I did <laughs> as the re-record. Oh, my God. You know, you know, it, it was crazy. You, know? you got money for being the songwriter. That's great. Right? Yeah, yeah crazy, you know, crazy stuff. Good for those guys finding clever ways to uh, keep afloat in this industry, you know? Like, I, I was not a fan when that game came out and my little brother and everybody was playing this thing i'm like uh take lessons learn how to play a fucking guitar you know that was me um but uh i did i did think of after after some time when i would start to see like younger people getting into older bands and stuff and i'm like wow this you know uh, that's actually pretty cool yeah um, but hearing hearing behind the scenes and hearing the you know the artists getting paid and all that stuff you know that's that's actually pretty cool yeah it was it was awesome i mean you know when we finished guitar hero 3 uh you know it was really funny though so we asked for a copy of the game it sold millions you you yeah. think that you would get one for free they would anticipate that nope we paid for it they're like no <laughs> you know we won't give it to you but we'll give you a reduced rate oh wow but yeah, you know, we thought that we were like, oh my god, you know, the, the you know, when the next one comes out, we're going to be doing that one. And what happened was, every band in the world was like, no, this game, you know, we'll give them our masters. That way, we get paid for, you know, for the. Ma it was just like, okay, yep. you know, damn. And they got wise. <laughs> but good for them. You know, that game definitely helped out the awareness of, like you were mentioning, the the older artists and. And even some new ones. I mean, at, at a time when music was going more digital and guitar sales declining and all these things, I mean, you know, it, it definitely was a good thing. <laughs> even if I wasn't willing to say so at the time. <laughs> I still have never played the game. Yeah, I haven't either. The last video game console that I owned was the PlayStation 1, so I'm a little behind the times <laughs> on, on that. Oh, come on, um, you was... play Candy Crush on your phone, though. No, no. <laughs> well, actually, I've, you know, I've, I've, I have played some Mario Kart whenever that's available, you know, so I've, I've, I've definitely put my hands on, on the Wii and the Nintendo Switch before, but I'm definitely uh, more of a NES, SNES kind of guy. Got it. Oh, yeah, but uh, sorry, I, we got into that whole yeah, thing. Sorry. But, um, yeah, sorry, it kind so, of sidetracked. Uh, well, yeah, that was really interesting. But yeah, so uh, where are you at now? Are you still in Arizona? Are you no, in... I moved back to, to L.A. Uh, back in 2010 okay. and been doing doing records ever since. One of the things I'm, uh, I'm now doing is I was hired by Nickelodeon Animation as of the first of the year, started there full-time. as oh, wow. uh, So I record... All the animated shows that are on on Nickelodeon, it's pretty it's pretty awesome. You do, you do the voiceover and stuff. Yeah, so the, yeah, so the voiceover actors come in and and you record. Cool. Them. It has rejuvenated me in many different ways. I mean, the people there, the people that cast all the actors and um, uh, the head of audio there, the other recording engineer Manny, he's thirty years old and he showed me 
how to do everything and you know this is the way that we do things here and kind of like walk me through you know from you know isdn lines to source connect and adr and all these things and it's uh it is it's pretty freaking bitchin i will say that's gotta be cool man switching it up and going into tv production like that absolutely um, I've, been, know, I've been looking for a job uh, doing tv tv work for a while now and when that came up, I was like, oh, my God, this is awesome. So what I do now or what I've been doing, because I was freelancing there for a year, and then I was just hired full time this year. All the bands that I did records for, I just said, your record's going to take four times longer, but you're going to have a better record. Yeah. Everybody was super patient. You know, I'd do the long days on Saturdays and Sundays and you know, finish up at Nickelodeon at 6 and then hit my studio from 7 until 11 or 12 at night. And yeah. it's awesome. I think it's a great combination between doing records, which I'll never give up. Uh, you know, I love yeah. it. I'm just uh, more selective now in what I work on. I would like to uh, to get into more mixing. You know, mm-hmm. where you know I have a lot of bands that are now sending me just songs to mix. One song, two songs. It's like oh, okay, great. You know, and and go down that route and. Uh, if they want added production, then I get in there, you know, do some keyboards and, you know, drum loops and edit up some things and tighten up things and, you know, whatever, whatever you need to do, uh, you know, yeah. to make it happen. But it's, uh, it's awesome and I love it. And it's uh, enabling me to, uh, for the first time in my life, because uh, I've had five vacations my whole life. Two of them were, <laughs> two of them were honeymoons. Yeah. So... Uh, I've really never had an opportunity to go out to dinner with my friends or go to a movie or do anything like that. And people think like, oh, no, man, you've done that. It's like, no, I actually haven't. You know, I missed out on all the things that people take for granted. I, I don't. Every time that I'm out and I'm doing something, it's like a, it's a brand new experience. Somebody asks me, well, where do, where do you want to go? It's like, I don't know. And they're like, but you, you know, you're born and raised in LA. And I was like, yeah, but I never, never, I never left the studio. I never, <laughs> yeah, I never did anything. It's like, you know, I started in this industry when I was, you know, I started working at the Troubadour when I was 17 and a half. And I went right from there to working in the studio. That was all I did. And I don't know what to do. I've, I think I've gone hiking once in my life. <laughs> and yeah you, man you know I'm, so i'm that i'm that dude yeah <laughs> for so sure it's uh you know yeah. so all of this is like it, it's a it's a brand new life for me and and super super excited you know you go to you know you go to work and you're working with the nicest people in the world and it's and it, you're part of a team like i mentioned it's like the casting team has to do the scheduling and booking and all this and you know we rely on them to to guide us through what session we have to pull up and who's coming in and all of this and you're working as a team it's a it's a it's a solid unit and it's fun and it's exciting and yeah the music industry was my dream job i never thought that i would find something else that i absolutely love i'm absolutely blessed that i have this I'm re-energized. Well, yeah, I bet at the grueling pace that you worked for so fucking long. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you look back on 
everything, you know, all the different genres that I've worked with and all the different artists that I've worked with, to be a part of all of these records and all of these things that it's mind-blowing when you look back, but you don't realize it when you're doing it. Yeah, yeah, you're just on to the next project, yeah. trying to meet that deadline. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, it's like now when I, um, you know, I talk with the bands, it's like, man, I'm so sorry I was such an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, you weren't down. Do you, do you keep up with any of the old bands? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, Rob Ramos from uh, Strung Out is like my brother. It's my long-lost brother right now because we haven't talked in a, in a little bit. But, uh, yeah. you know, anytime that I'm able to go out and see a band, I at least go out and say hello. There was a show last year that uh, Lagwagon played, and it was awesome you know dave ron and i you know had the best conversation and you know little joe their bass player now last time i saw them it was jesse so now yeah you know, so that you know it's been a while their last album was good too yeah well you know look at the source man yeah <laughs> but uh yeah i try to stay in touch with uh with everyone that wants to wants to stay in touch that's awesome man yeah I mean, you guys were uh, uh, obviously uh, we were a huge part of each other's lives. And even just me uh, as a fan from the outside, I mean, you guys were a huge part of my life, you know. I mean, to this day, I, I'll be out on rap tours and whatever, and I'll be listening to Good Riddance and Bad Religion, in the, you know, in the, in the van in between shows. You know, the guys are like, oh, let me put on this. I'm like, nah, I don't want, I like, just listen to that all fucking night. <laughs> Like, g- give me give me my music now, you know. Like, <laughs> I just listened to the same uh, tempo, you know, over and over and over again for the last four hours. I'm like, I need some, you know, like I need that shit. Right. Yeah. Amp up the energy. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, and that was the thing. I think you know, back then we were all one big family. It was, uh, you know, everybody was interconnected. Yeah. And there, there's nothing that will really take away from that. You know, we all go through life changes and, you know, different things happening. And, man, it's just life. But, you know, I think we all were part of something back then. And it continues. Yeah, I think the the true testament is that seeing these bands, I'll even include no use in that. Because even though Tony's gone, you know, I still listen to his solo records all the time. I listen to No Use and Good Riddance and Propagandi and No Effects, of course. And uh, all of these bands have endured. They're still killing it to this day. I mean, that last Strung Out was like, that's, that's probably my favorite one of theirs, you know. They're still doing it, and they're, and they're still better than ever, you know. And uh, I just... Everybody, I, everybody I keeps that. growing. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a, it's a never-ending uh, process. Well, I, I thank you so much for taking the time to do this. You know, uh, I just kind of hit you up out of the blue, but I enjoyed the conversation and hearing some of these stories. Oh, uh, I got a million of them. All right, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch me live this Friday night at Level Up here in Eugene with former podcast guest Gift of Gab from Black Alicious. And thank you so much to Ryan Green for your time and generosity with these stories. As always... If you're a fan of the show, subscribe to it. Give us a five-star iTunes rating and review. Share us on social media. 
I'm gonna be busy in the studio with Dead Fucking Serious. I'm gonna leave you with a demo track that we put out last year. This song's called Never Again.